Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Welcome back to season two of Water Women Podcast. I am so excited to share this season with you, and I'm absolutely thrilled that we're back for another one. Uh, We truly would not be here without all of you guys who tune in every week and listen and enjoy the show and love hearing the stories from the water women that we have on. So I'm really excited to see what's in store for this season. We have lots of big plans. Before we jump into today's episode, I do want to extend a huge thank you to some pretty important people who we definitely would not be here without. Uh, Kelly, 100%. You are the best, absolute best. Any of the music you hear today is actually done by Brian, one of my really good friends, and he does phenomenal work, and I'm always happy to share him. I've had some people reach out to me about him, and if you enjoy the music and you're looking for some for your own, let him know, because he is phenomenal. And like when he creates new music for me, I'll give him like one sentence idea of kind of what I'm maybe thinking about, and somehow he nails it every time. So, Brian, you were awesome. Danny, Kalen, you guys too with your vocals. All the artwork you see created for Waterloo, and that comes from one of my really good friends, Lexi, and I love sharing it. She is so incredibly talented. Without those guys, none of that stuff would be possible. So a huge, huge thank you and shout out to them. Today's season two episode features, of course, my favorite things, whales and mammals, and you're going to hear who it's from and what she does, but I'm really excited to share it with you guys today. We kind of ramble on a little bit, but you know, what else would you expect in this podcast? So without further ado, let's jump in and hear from our guests today. Today we're talking all things marine mammal and we have Emily joining us. Hi Emily, how are you today? Hi Jill, I'm Fab, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm super excited to have you on because as everyone who listens knows, I'm a huge marine mammal fan and I'm super excited to get to talk to someone who shares the same interest as me. So how about you kind of introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? All that kind of fun stuff. Oh, it's great to talk to somebody else that loves marine mammals as well. <laughs> it means we can ramble <laughs> on a little bit more. So Absolutely. My- I'm uh, Emily Haig. Uh, I'm from England, but live in Scotland now. I've lived in Scotland for the past 10 years. And what I've been doing for the past 10 years is marine biology with a focus on marine mammals, um, mainly working on projects with uh, harbour seals, bottlenose dolphins, a little bit of a dip into killer whales, which are my favourite animals. And then um, now i've just started a phd and that's looking at um human impacts of marine mammals around the whole of the uk so all marine mammal species that we find in uk waters and trying to think a bit more broadly rather than all those exciting things we've looked at in very detailed when i was younger it's now thinking a bit more from a management perspective what are all these stresses that we're putting on the marine mammals how do they how do we assess them how can we protect them in in some areas and highlight areas where there's a lot of impacts going on and kind of for me trying to use my science and my my platform to do something useful with my PhD yeah so four months in so we'll see we'll see how we go oh so just at the beginning stage is the most fun part (laughs) yeah yeah I'm full of beans just now I'm full of ideas and it's it is um kind of underway already which is exciting um yeah but I'm really excited to talk to you about it some more 
That is super cool that you're looking at all different uh, marine mammal species and not just like focusing in on one particular thing and that you have background on so many different background experience working with so many different marine mammal species. That must be super helpful. Yeah, it's really useful. So um, I guess when I was younger, I always was obsessed with killer whales and wanted to spend all my time working on them. But actually, um, I think as you get a bit older, you realize that there's not only those things that are interesting. And it was fantastic to kind of grow up in the UK and actually do my dream job in the UK as well. So like um, I worked on photo ID projects on bottlenose dolphins and on harbour seals. And it just gave me an appreciation of what we've got here. And also just the habits of all the different animals, how they work, what stresses them out, um, what they eat, just getting an idea just more about each population around the UK has been a really good grounding uh, to start this PhD. So how are you looking at this? Like, I know you've just started and everything, but how are you collecting the data for this? What specific species are you looking at? Like, tell us more. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of looking at this from a huge holistic approach from all different angles of how can cumulative impacts be assessed on marine mammals. So the first prong is the actual governance and assessment side of things. So more of looking back over 10 or 15 years and looking at how if you want to build um, a project in the sea, say an offshore wind farm or a harbour development, what loops have you had to jump through and what assessments have you had to do to build these and how have you had to take marine mammals into account. Um, so that's been really useful in getting an idea of what we've been doing already and where the gaps are um, and sort of making some recommendations about what we should actually be doing and it's been a good way for me to focus my ideas of of how I can provide some of those recommendations of, of what we should have been doing all along. Um, so the next step of that is to start thinking about um, mapping all the stresses out. So using GIS to map stresses such as underwater noise, um, plastics, uh, pollutants, um, map all of those around the UK but each um, stressor or sorry each species responds differently to stresses so for example we've got grey seals and harbour seals in the UK and uh, I would say that um, for the most part grey seals are quite a bit more hardy species than harbour seals. Harbour seals are quite flighty um, and nervous and their population is in decline here so they I would say are more susceptible to certain stresses than others or more sensitive. Um, so it's just, so my plan in terms of data collection is to try and get in touch with as many people as I can around the UK and ask them what data have they got available? Would this be available to be put into a huge map which shows everything around the UK of what's going on in the water? And then also getting in touch with um, everyone that's got abundance and distribution data on marine mammals and asking them from their experience researching specific species where would they put them on like the scale of vulnerability like for example a humpback whales more vulnerable to to creel fishing than than big drift nets um, and what's the biggest problem for each species and then you can weight the maps accordingly based on how sensitive each species is to each stressor. So so that's the big plan, which I think is going to be amazing. And it's going to involve lots of data sharing and lots of 
really exciting talks with different experts about the stresses and about the species. Definitely. I think it's so cool when people get to like work together and you get to kind of share all this data and stuff. I love that. Mm-hmm. I'm such a big believer in the more people, the better. And, and just trying to get everyone has something different to offer. Every research institution has something different. And um, if the public, I'm just so excited to get lots of different opinions and get everyone together and to to put it all into one space on marine mammals because I guess the common goal with what everyone's been doing is that they want to protect them and use the data that they're collecting to to make sure the impacts don't get um, any worse on marine mammals so I hope that it can be a tool um, that would be public available that would show show what's going on in our seas. Absolutely. It's so important to make that like accessible to everyone. Like we've talked about this many times on the podcast before about how sharing with people how much the the seas and the oceans impact them without even them realizing it's so important. And so to make that accessible and to share that is super amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to do that. I've got loads of uh, ideas of outreach and I think it. I'm looking forward to going to conferences and things like that and and um selling it I guess selling all these ideas to people and spreading the word because at the moment it's um in amongst me my supervisors and other PhD students so I'm excited to get it out there but at the moment we still need to build it all but yeah (laughs) so if you had to kind of take a guess at which which stressor you're going to be looking at the most or which one you think is going to be most impactful what would your guess be? Would you think it's going to be plastics, sounds, shipping roads? What What are you kind of thinking you're going to be looking at the most? Uh, this is an interesting one because what I've been realizing at the moment is in the past 10 years or 10, 15 years, the stresses that we've thought about in terms of assessments at the moment is mainly underwater noise um, coming from piling. So from the construction noise of, of whatever project they're assessing but this is because that's the data that's easiest to collect and yeah. that's that's by no means easy to collect anyway but the data on like um i don't know plastic distribution in the sea and how that translates to how it's impacting marine mammals is is so far pretty difficult to quantify which means that nobody's really got to grips with how I guess how red some areas of the maps would be compared to green and doing well for others. So I'm looking forward to thinking about the stresses that aren't traditionally included in these impact assessments, the things like PCBs or entanglements. Um, Yeah, because the assessments at the moment just tend to look at noise. And and for the UK, actually, they don't always even take into account shipping shipping routes or noise, um, which is a huge growing stress as shipping's only going to increase um, as time goes on. So it's something that really should be taken into account. And there's some parts of the North Sea that are just um, like motorways, but with mm. ships in. So um, for that not to be included at the moment, um, not not ideal. So I'm looking forward to trying to map the, the stresses that we don't traditionally include in cumulative impact assessments because um, yeah, it's hard to know which one I think will be most impactful when, when it's never really been quantified before. But I know for the larger whale species, we have quite a problem with entanglement in um, uh, creels and, and lobster pots. 
Um, so that'll be interesting to kind of put all that data onto a map and see if there's some some trends that that we notice. I think it's super amazing that your PhD project is going to kind of like pave the way for future projects and research to be done. Like you're doing this super broad overview and then like years from now, people are going to be referencing that when they go into like the specifics about how this affects this. And they're going to be looking at your paper because it's one of the first like broad overview ones. That is so awesome. Oh, thank you. That I'm so excited about it as well. And I'm really excited too that it's, it's not too specific. So it means that I get to be kind of look at everything, which is what I always want to do anyway. I always have too many books that I want to read at the same time. And, but this means I get to do do everything all at once for four years. And it, it's actually my project to have an excuse. Yeah, but I do hope it'll pave the way to, to show some areas that we just don't know enough about. So like you say, people can work on that in future. And also to highlight areas where there's just too much pressure going on already. So we need to kind of slow down with project development and pressures in certain areas. Yeah, so hopefully lots of uses. No pressure on me. <laughs> no, not at all. Definitely not. <laughs> so you were mentioning earlier that you're planning on mapping this. So how is this something you map? And do you kind of have like a map that shows everything? Or are you mapping each thing individually? So this is, I think this is one of the reasons why it's not been done before or not too widely done is because it's quite disagreed with the best approach of how to map stresses. So the way that I think I'm going to do it is um, to have, so you, you have your stressor, which is say underwater noise, and then you'll have your, for your species, the vulnerability scale of how sensitive it is to that stressor. And then on a scale of, say, zero to one, you would mark that area and then say one would be red and zero would be green. So then you can map that that stressor and that species for the whole whole of the UK. And you can say where are the areas where is that's very uh, impactful for that species. But the problem is when you want to map multiple stressors on the same map, the only way you can really do it is by um adding the stresses on top of each other but oh, okay. um the problem with that is that we don't know if if you experience this stressor if it's additive so it's just one plus one or if you if experiencing the stressor two stresses at the same time and you experience it less or if by experiencing two at the same time you're more stressed than you would have been if it was just one plus one so it's um it's highly contested whether mapping's the right way to, to map stresses. But for me, I I believe that if we if it's the only way we've got them, we can at least try and do it that way. And it'll highlight areas where there's eight stresses rather than where there's one stressor. And that's useful in, in itself. Um, yeah, so the problem of adding the stresses on, on top of each other is something that I think I'll come up against. And I can imagine already people putting their hands up and saying, I don't agree with this. But I think for now, it's, it's the best we can do. And, and the other approach is to model. So just using mathematical models and population models to predict um, responses to disturbance, which is also a really good way. But there's loads of uncertainties with that yeah. way as well. So I think using lots of different approaches is really useful to get a bit of a broad idea of what we're doing and how we can help. 
absolutely. I totally get what you're saying about how like the mapping when you're looking at a singular stressor is going to be really easy to understand. But when you start putting them on top of one each other, it's going to get kind of like a little messy. So you're going to have to figure out the best way to show that. And that kind of takes into account the, you can't, you can't look at a single stressor just by itself because there's always going to be like overlap between the stressors too. So it's going to be a really interesting thing to show. Yeah, there's as well as that, there's also that the stressors change during different courses of the year and in space as well. And so, for example, like in summer, there's lots of people out on the recreational boats at the own just going going out um, to get some sunshine. But in winter, a lot of the boats get taken out of the water for maintenance. So that stress varies over the course of a year. So it's trying to think about how you can map stresses that change in time as well. So I'm hoping that I might be able to get fancy and make some sort of interactive maps that will be like little videos that will change over time and be a bit more interactive. So that would be really cool. And then that would that I deal with the temporal problem of showing things how they're changing over time I'm really interested to see I can't wait till you're like done your PhD and interested to see how this actually plays out and how you manage to make this work that's going to be super cool to see yeah I'm really excited as, as well I think if I knew someone that was doing this project I'd be closely watching them to see to see what they were doing so well, we will be closely watching you, so... Yeah, definitely. I will 100% hopefully be sending you these magical videos. <laughs> I can't wait. So, for the data for your PhD, are you able... Are you out yourself collecting the data? Or, like you mentioned, getting some shared data from other organizations, but is there any data collection that you yourself are doing? Um. So, it's all going to be data from, from other people, which is really exciting. I guess the early stages of my career have all been doing fieldwork and getting the data myself. So it's funny to now be be attached to a desk, but but I guess in this COVID lockdown world, it's actually good to have a project where it doesn't require any of the, the fieldwork side of things. Um, but actually, I think, um, I guess the distribution data that will show where dolphins are and seals are, that'll... Um, some of that I will have once um, collected data for. And I think the fieldwork that I've done before has given me a good insight into what those species are vulnerable to or sensitive to. So um, I worked on a photo ID project taking pictures of harbour seals, um, haul-out sites. And so I was visiting haul-out sites every day taking pictures of seals um, because the spots or the pelage doesn't change over time so if you take pictures every year you can identify the same individuals and it can give you an idea of population size um who's having pups and that kind of thing cool. and um but when i was doing that there, it was interesting to get to know the animals there and you could see what what would stress them out or make them disturbed or or what they didn't mind at all so so the seals that we were looking at at least anyway that hole outside as soon as a kayak went past all of the hole outside went into the water and boats they were very flighty when there was boats nearby um 
and also once <laughs> a wave came past. I think that was the wake of a boat and made a seal jump, and then the whole hall outside got in the water because they just panicked. <laughs> so, so I guess that background is really useful to knowing that for those maps, like seals are, well, harbor seals are just very flighty. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So interesting so i'm not sure how useful it is for the whole hall outside to get in because the wave made one of them jump though (laughs) (laughs) it's always i so i work on a i used to work on a boat like that did whale watching here in the bay of fundy and we would see often harbor seals and gray seals and it was always so funny to me that if you just like look at them wrong like they are gone (laughs) they are out of there they're gone you won't see them so, so it's funny. not just Scottish seals that <laughs> No. It's all the harbor seals. I think they're just in they're shy, I think, is what it must be. And grey seals are the exact opposite. They will come up to you and they'll want to fight you. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very unfortunately true. And they will win. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't like to take one on at all. <laughs> I don't know, it might be fun to kind of see what happens. <laughs> There's a lot of people that go diving near here and they, some of them like sort of really hope for encounters with grey seals and I just think I don't know if I'd want to meet one. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so tell us more about these uh, photo ID projects you worked on. Where were you working on those and what were you doing with them? So um, the one that I worked on for three and a half years, that was the Bottlenose Dolphin Photo ID project that's based at St Andrews at the Sea Mammal Research Unit in Scotland. And that's part of a long running project that uh, is alongside the University of Aberdeen Cromarty Lighthouse Field Station. So they've been collecting photo ID data, um, I think it's since the late 1980s, so a really long time. And there's dolphins that they photographed, like in 1988, and they photographed them as an adult that we still see today. So it means that you get an idea of the age, so they're at least 35 years old, which is just amazing. But they were adults when they were photographed the first time, so for it to be as big as that it would have been at least eight or nine years old so yeah it gives you an idea of how suddenly you can work out how old these animals can be and how many there are so my so for the past three and a half years so for one day a week we'd go out on the survey um which was just a small boat and take pictures of the dolphins and try and find as many groups as possible to try and work out population size um, how they were using the area so there's the the project that I worked on down here and then like I said there's a the parallel project running up at Cromarty where they they're out taking pictures as well um so they're two areas of the same habitat to try and just look at it's the same population, but some dolphins are more prefer certain areas, we think. So, yeah, that was a really cool project to work on. And I think that's that informs the government of how the dolphins are doing, whether they're doing well or not. Um, and a similar project with kind of the same goals of informing government was uh, working on the harbour seal project. So that was um, at the Sea Mammal Research Unit as well. Um, funded by the Scottish government and that was looking at taking pictures of seals again the photo ID side of things in different haul out sites in Scotland because some areas that we went to the population was declining whereas in other areas the population was staying the same and trying to work out how those populations were doing and and why and um, 
get some ideas of birth rates and that kind of thing from that data. So that was um, going to the west coast of Scotland and going to the Orkney Isles um, and going to those haul-out sites every day and taking those pictures, which is why why you ended up getting to know the seals quite well and how, how flighty they were. So that project's like that. St still ongoing as well, so that's really cool. That is super cool. I think people really kind of underestimate the importance of photo ID, like, especially in marine mammal science, because it's really, like, you can't do mark recapture super easy, easily with marine mammals. Like, they're just too big for tagging and stuff. So this, like, photo, photo ID is such a good option, like a secondary option of, like, it allows yeah. you to almost, like, in quotations, like, mark recapture without actually, like, yeah, I completely like, agree. It's like, relatively cheap. It's non-invasive. Um, exactly, yes. You don't, well, I was going to say you don't need much skill to do it. I'm probably putting myself <laughs> down a bit there. But um, yeah, it's something that you can go out, like I said, every summer and just get the data. And it, it, it the data that's, that's been collected on these projects has informed so many important things for for that population at least about how they're doing with the all the developments that have happened over the scale of their lifetime around our coast and there's no other data like that like biopsy samples tell you about that moment in time but the the photo id can give you an idea of what's going on with the population over all those years so yeah completely agree it's a a very overlooked because i think it's quite a simple technique but it's it can give you so much insight into how the population is doing absolutely it's such an important thing and i love that people are like i love sharing that with people because it is kind of like you wouldn't think like oh you're just taking pictures of animals but you have no idea how much work that is doing or how much mm -hmm. it's helping the work that's being done yeah, absolutely. We've actually got a project that just started with the Bottlenose Dolphin Photo ID project where um, it's so it's called Citizen Fins, if anyone wants to Google it. But that's um, where anyone from the public or if they're out on a boat and has taken pictures of dolphins around Scotland, they can submit their pictures to this um, website and then someone will ID that dolphin if the picture's good enough. And we'll get back cool. to you with what dolphin it is. And that means that the surveys can only cover a certain area and they only go out one day a week but if you get photos from all different areas and th at the weekends and all that kind of thing you get such a better idea of where where the animals are and um by doing that i think they're already finding that there's dolphins that we hadn't seen for say two or three years and they've been down the coast somewhere that the surveys just don't cover so it's such a powerful tool to show people that they're they can spend their summer going out taking pictures and submitting it to a scientific project. So I'm really excited to see where that project goes. Yeah, that's super cool. And for those listeners wondering, um, you can actually identify individual animals by a photo. Like it sounds super weird, but I know <laughs> I, I did some dolphin uh, research and we would do it and you can tell by it's different for every animal, but with the dolphins, it's by the, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys use the dorsal fin. Yeah. Yep. So how do you do photo identification with seals? Because they all kind of look alike to me. Yeah, seals are, are more tough. So you can, if the population's small enough, you can kind of do it by eye because you'll get used to the seals eventually. But the 
So we use a software called Wild ID, which gives you the top 20 most likely seals that it thinks it is out of the catalogue. Um, but basically you match them by, if you can imagine a seal's pelage, which is its fur and the patterns of its fur, um, so there's dark spots and light spots, and actually around the world, the, the way the harbour seal dark and light spots are differs quite a bit. But for the ones in the UK at least, we the pelage is different enough and uniquely identifiable enough to, to ID them, apart from in August when they undergo this molt <laughs> where all the fur comes off. So yeah, I have to strategically decide the time of year to take pictures because August is no use whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they do tend to molt and they look a little weird when they're molting. Very, very interesting animals. Yeah, they look, well, I don't know if homeless is the right word, homeless seals. <laughs> they look the a little messy, problem. like just very like un, unprepared for a photo kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> like they've just got out of bed. <laughs> exactly. I love that. When you were younger, did you always know that you wanted to study marine mammals or did you find it later on? Like, how did you know this is kind of the path you wanted to take? Um, so I grew up in Sheffield, which is a an industrial city in the middle of England, nowhere near the sea whatsoever, um, with no family background of academia or, or studying or even from moving out of Sheffield, to be honest. So, um, but I just always absolutely loved the sea. I loved learning about the sea, reading books about the sea and um so near me there was like um, some big reservoirs near nearby that my mum would take me for walks around and I just used to be obsessed that whales must be in these reservoirs I think I must have been five or six years old <laughs> and so she'd always want to go for a walk and I'd always want to go because I thought there's a chance that I would finally see a whale but in hindsight there was absolutely no chance whatsoever <laughs> in the middle of England <laughs> to see a killer whale pop up um but I was just obsessed and then I remember being about 13 years old and having a careers talk and then going home and it was when the internet was just awful and you had to dial up and nobody could <laughs> use the house phone while you were using the internet but I just remember finding a website that said marine biology and I never knew that there was such a thing as marine biology and that you could actually be a marine biologist um I think I kind of thought the only way that you could do that was by working in SeaWorld then um so I, it was just like having an epiphany like learning that there's actually a job that is is the thing that you love so yeah so when I was 18 went to university and did marine biology and went to St Andrews which has got lots of uh, people that specialize in marine mammals and has got the sea mammal research unit there um so got lots of lectures and I, I just loved it um and I think I always thought even as a student and as kind of in my early 20s I, I never realized how much marine life there was around the UK I always thought that you had to travel to the Mediterranean or somewhere very tropical and warm or like Canada to see the killer whales um and now I'm really starting to get an appreciation of like the UK's got loads of amazing marine mammal species. So yeah, that's been really nice to kind of learn that what's on my doorstep is really exciting too. 
Absolutely. It's kind of just not in the reservoirs near my house. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? You never know. There could be one. The Loch Ness Monster, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of funny to think that, like, growing up, when you hear marine biologists, you're like, ah, yes, I have to go somewhere tropical to do that. That's definitely not, like, a here thing. And then as you get older, you kind of realize, you're like, oh, my gosh, I can do that anywhere there's oceans because there's so many different uh, animals and different branches of marine biology. Or just, like, ocean studies kind of thing. Yeah, we don't all have to be the the surfer diving in tropical reef people. There's there's people that like the cold and stuff as well, which is nice. <laughs> Absolutely, very important because there's so much interesting that's going on in the cold waters of the oceans that isn't super well known yet. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much, so much to to find out. So how did you, what path did you kind of take? You mentioned you went to St. Andrews and then did you go on and do a master's or anything after that? Yeah, yeah. So I did my undergraduate degree at St. Andrews and then went up to the University of Aberdeen to do a master's. So that was in marine and fisheries ecology. So I am really interested in fisheries as well. And I guess mainly because it impacts um, marine mammals so much. But, But that was really interesting to just learn a bit more about another side of things rather than just all the marine mammals um and there I'd learn all about the statistics and about the geographical software that you need to use to make these maps um so the masters was really good to just get a bit of a broader grounding in lots of skills um so then after that was when I came back and did and worked at the sea mammal research unit in St Andrews um for three and a half years I was there and that was um, doing the research assistant project. So the photo ID um, helped make some websites. Um, and then for a year, I also worked as a consultant. So um, it's Marine consultant. So that was um, using all this marine mammal knowledge, but to help write impact assessments and sort of inform the, the business side of things, I suppose, a little bit more. Cool. So that was really interesting to get a, a bit of more of a, broader view of how the science that we know can be translated um i guess to governments and and project developers and that side of things because we we get very into the science which is really important to do but it's also it was nice to see where it all ends up um i think that'll be really helpful for me in future as well to to think a bit more about what where is this going to end up what what i'm doing at the moment so that was um that's and then i started the phd so yeah just finished with the photo id projects just this past christmas and with smooth consulting as well so yeah i i do miss working and getting out to sea and all that kind of thing but the phd is just awesome i've got amazing supervisors as well so yeah very super happy. exciting mm-hmm. Now, in your spare time, you run something called the Killer Whale Trail, which is super cool. So let's hear all about that. What is it? So uh, on the Killer Whale Trail is, it kind of started two years ago now as a way for me to put all my science and love of the marine life out there and document what I was doing, um, 
basically as a way to not have it on my personal Facebook page and be boring everybody to death, which is what <laughs> I thought I was doing, and to develop a, a platform that I could put everything on and show everyone what you can do to help marine life, the science that's uh, out there, um, what adventures you can go on in the UK, because like I said, I used one of those people that thought you had to go really far away. So I really wanted to make a way of showing people just how much there is that you can do do here, how all the cool projects that are going on. So that was the idea of it. And I'd set it up initially to help a project that I was helping with called Ecopreds that's based at SMU. So that's looking at um, killer whale predation on harbour seals. Um, so that was, I got to start with the killer whale trail on that, but then it's just grown arms and legs because I never expected so many people to like it and to be interested in what I was doing. I just thought that all the people that I thought I was getting on the nerves talking about marine life, like on my personal Facebook page or Instagram or whatever, they're all the ones that like and really engage with with on the killer whale trail. And there's... Um, now two years later I think across all the platforms there's about 2,000 followers um we've had blog posts and been included on all sorts of different pages and podcasts and stuff and it's just amazing and it's wonderful to get to meet all these people who are really excited about the marine world too and also just a way to get out there cool things that are going on to keep people updated with what we're doing um, there was a beach clean campaign that we ran last summer um, that collected more than a ton of litter so I'm so excited about where it's got and I feel it's a really amazing way to to engage people and to to remind people that there's so much cool stuff in the sea around here yeah so it's definitely grown arms and legs from what it started with which was just a way for me to put everything out there uh, and not get on people's nerves and now <laughs> Now, yeah, I wouldn't be without it. That is so cool that it kind of took out, like it just started as something kind of like not private for you, but just like a place for you to share these things. And it really just took off because so many people love it. I love that for you. Yeah, it's fab. And it's been a way that I've been able to make change. I think, I guess, when you're early in your career and quite young, I suppose, you, you feel like you really want to make change, but that you're not educated enough or not high enough enough up in your field to do anything useful and that's really given me fire in my belly and showed me that I've we've managed to clean a ton of litter on the beach just by having this Facebook page basically and getting people out there to to encourage people to do that and we had people from Canada all around the world doing these beach cleans that were all part of our campaign and I just think it just shows you that you don't need to have a certain level of education or you don't need to have any level of education actually at all. You just need to be really passionate and, and do things that get people excited. And I think you can make such a big difference. So I think that's really helped me in my career now the past few years is just reminded me of, of what you can do just out of being really excited about something. Absolutely. So that cleanup you were talking about, is that your the 2020 beach clean that you were telling me about earlier? Yeah, yeah. So that is, um, so it was funded by this amazing charity in the UK called Sea Changes, um, and they funded uh, two weeks of beach cleans up on the Shetland Isles to 
uh, clean as much litter as we could and weigh the litter every day and we had like a running total and we'd compare that to say oh this is the same weight as so many puffins or so many harbour porpoise or a seal um but because we were doing this like running total of weight it meant that anyone around the world could join in each day and add add on so the running total was adding their t litter in as well so it meant that we could collect quite a large a large weight in that time frame um so that was last summer um and that was driven by going to shetland the year before to look for killer whales on that project that i mentioned and while while we were there uh, looking at killer whales um or or not as the case may be looking at the sea waiting for something to happen <laughs> a lot of the time so shetland the shetland islands for anyone that's not from the uk the shetlands are really remote islands off the top of scotland which is it's a 10-hour ferry ride from mainland scotland north you're going um up to 60 degrees north it's halfway between the uk and iceland in the top of the north sea and there's a a very small archipelago of islands um, and it's got lots of killer whales and lots of marine life around there but the problem with it being so remote is that a lot of seas converge there so they end up with loads of litter washing up on their beaches even though there's hardly mm -hmm. any people that live there the litter is completely not from the public there at all it's just from washing up it's kind of a wash up point for three oceans um so we were going there expecting this wild pristine environment which for the most part it is but if you get down to the nitty-gritty in the beach there's there's a lot of rubbish that's washing up there um so from going the year before i kind of felt like okay i've gone to go and see the killer whales now and tick my box off of uh, amazing wildlife sightings but i wanted to go back and do something useful so the on the killer whale uh, sorry on the litter trail campaign that we ran as part of on the killer whale trail was as a kind of way to give something back and go back again and actually do something useful there rather than just go in there just, just to see the whales which we did as well which was amazing <laughs> <laughs> always the bonus when you get to yeah. do this awesome work is getting to mm -hmm. see the animals that you love yeah yeah it really makes you remind you why you do what you do for sure absolutely so that beach cleanup you mentioned that you were kind of looking at like you weighed how much trash or how much how much trash you picked up uh and compared it to animals so i'm i'm really curious how much did you pick up what did it end up being so in total we collected 1122 kilos of litter which is just no. amazing yeah so that was the equivalent of um Oh, I think it was 700 puffins and something like 80 harbour porpoise, which is the most sighted marine mammal that we see see in the UK waters. So that was just amazing and completely knocked my socks off with the amount that I thought we were going to collect. I was happy to collect anything because I kind of have to remind myself sometimes that even one carrier bag in that two weeks would have been better than nothing. But to collect um, 1,200 kilos is just amazing. Yeah. That is, uh, like, unbelievable. That's so, it's kind of like a bittersweet uh, reaction because you're like, wow, that's so awesome that you cleaned up that much trash. But it's also like, mm, we shouldn't have to be cleaning up that much trash kind of thing. Yeah, 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 I did. When I was there, I think there was one beach that was 
the most remote beach that we cleaned and it was so beautiful like the sand was white and the sea was turquoise and it was glorious and I could see seals swimming in the sea and you could see them underwater because the water was so clear um but that beach had the most litter on and it was the one that really got to me because there was just litter everywhere um and it just felt like this insurmountable problem that we couldn't couldn't clean and I just ended up picking up this litter and just crying while picking up the litter it was the kind of the one that broke the camel's back that I was just like oh my god this is just impossible we're at this remote place and there's so much litter but then afterwards I kind of thought even though we weren't physically capable of carrying the amount of litter to completely empty the beach even five big bags full is is better and it's a step in the right direction and campaigns like that I guess get people to to do it elsewhere as well so it is I think campaigns like that are tough because they really do get to you and you do start to feel gosh this is so huge but if we don't do anything then they'll just keep growing so I think it's really important to stay positive and and remember that every little thing that we do helps so just going to the supermarket and remembering to take your bag rather than buying another one is is a big thing really absolutely it does kind of make it feel like an uphill battle where you're like each piece of trash I pick up there's 10 more that enter it but slowly but surely I think we're kind of changing the narrative on that and hopefully are changing the changing the the run of it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think so so while you've been running your killer whale trail have you had any like super memorable moments or like any real sightings that kind of like stand out to you? Um, last year was pretty special. So this was, we were only there um, for the beach cleans this time. So the getting to see the whales was like an extra bonus. Um, and we saw two whales that I've not seen before. So that was Hulk and Knot. And they were uh, up on the Isle of Unst, which is the most northerly isle of the UK, um, and they were being filmed um, for by Silverback Film Productions. So these are the people that filmed for Blue Planet and stuff. So this is amazing, amazing footage and filming going on nearby. So we could see that film being captured out at sea, and we could see these two whales hunting and just doing these amazing behaviours where they. Uh, corral the seals into really small coves up in Shetland because the the kind of seascape there is lots of cliffs and lots of little tiny coves which means horribly for the seals that they can get the killer whales really close in shore to to catch them or not yeah. catch them the seals get away quite a lot <laughs> yeah so there was a moment up there when the camera crew were kind of really quite far offshore but the whales because the like I said of what the coast is like up there, the whales swim right past you if you sat on the shore. So you don't need to go on a boat to see these whales. You can just sit on the shoreline. And unexpectedly for everyone else that had been looking to see the whales, they came right close to where we were sat on the shore. So it meant that we got this viewing with just us and them no impacts nothing else going on in the world other than them swimming past and that was just a really special moment to just sit there and to just put the camera down because they were too close for my zoom camera which was amazing and just enjoy it 
So I think uh, that's something I also remind myself as well, that the, a picture that you take will never be as much as just watching it and just sitting there and appreciating the, the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, before we end off, I'm going to ask you quite possibly one of the hardest questions that you're ever going to be asked. <laughs> Do you have a favorite marine mammal? I think... Everyone who's listened to this will know the answer to this question. <laughs> I think it's a pretty easy one now at this point. But... Um, I would say that it will always be and always has been killer whales. But I think as I'm getting older and more into my career, I think I'm growing a big fondness for, for all the other marine mammals, which I kind of would skip the chapters of everything other than killer whales when I was younger. And yeah, so I think just to go in love of all of them is is quite nice now and of the sea as a whole I think just I think it's amazing it is a, it's a hard question because you're like well I like this but also I like this and this is really awesome too and you just once you find that love for the ocean you kind of just like take it and run with it because it's just so fun to have yeah yeah definitely and it, you just end up wanting to read and learn about as much as you can you have to kind of rein it in somewhere but I think <laughs> it's great to be so curious but also I don't feel like there's enough time to learn all the things that I want to learn and read about yeah, really is it? it's a little bit of like a rabbit hole like once you get going you can find different like little branches of everything and you just keep going you're like I don't have time to learn all of this <laughs> so true I'm already feeling like that about the PhD and just about the sea in general is like I just want to read forever and learn so much I don't have time or my brain I can't read fast enough to take it all in <laughs> and sometimes you're like reading and you're just like skimming things you're like I did not gain anything from that I don't even remember what I just read like yeah yeah completely agree I'm reading a book just now called The Deep I think it's by Alex Rogers and that's all about um the deep sea and about studying that and that's something that I'd never really thought about before obviously because I said I was just obsessed with killer whales but learning about the deep sea and vents and the coral reefs that grow down at deep sea vents is just amazing and it's something I'm a complete novice at, I know nothing about so that's been my Christmas reading book I'd really recommend that book I can't wait to check it out I'll have to put it on my list so before we head off, is there anywheres or can you share your social medias with the people listening so that they can find you and follow along with you? Oh, for sure. So um, my Instagram for the On the Killer Whale Trail is literally um, On the Killer Whale Trail, just no spaces, all lowercase. And then on Twitter, it's just On the KW Trail. Um, and on Facebook, if you just search On the Killer Whale Trail, it should come up there as well. Um, and then my Instagram, if you want to just follow my personal account, that's just got um, bits of other things that I do, reading, cycling and paddleboarding and that kind of thing. So that's uh, Emily L. Haig and H Haig is H-A-G-U-E. So Emily L. Haig for that. But if you find on the Killer World Trail, I think that just about sums up what I'm doing. <laughs> I love it. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to keep following along on your journey in the Killer Whale Trail, and I'm extra, extra excited to see the outcome of this PhD and then to see where that PhD takes you. Thank you. It's been amazing, and I'll be back in touch in three years when I 
tell you how to figure out how to read really fast and make these videos and maps. <laughs> Perfect. Stay tuned for the first episode of season five, where Emily <laughs> will come back and tell us everything that happened. <laughs> that sounds great. You'll have to book me in for, I think it's 2023. <laughs> Perfect. You're already booked. <laughs> awesome. Well, Emily, thank you again. It was super awesome to have you on today. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. Take care. Welcome to our new segment called What is Going On Here? This is the segment where I do the research on a question that has been itching my brain for far too long or come up with some fun facts to tell you guys. I do all the research and I just you guys just get to learn. So for today's episode, for today's segment, I decided to go along with the theme of On the Killer Whale Trail and find out more about orca familial bonds, because I think the familial bonds that orcas have is, like, they're so interesting. They're so tightly knit. So I did a little research for you guys, and let's hear what I found. Orcas, unlike other animals, display a very tight family bond, and they're known as pods. Each of the pods are usually made up of at least three or more generations, which is so cool. One of the coolest things about orcas is that the females are the dominant species. Heck yeah, girl power! The matriarch of each pod is usually the oldest female, so like the great grandma. And the orcas are also known to stay with whatever pod they're born into because they stay with their moms for their whole life. Both male and female will stay with their moms for their whole life. When they're born, they're born tail first, and usually their sister or aunt will be the one to lift them to the surface for a breath, letting the mom rest for a second. You know, it's a lot of work pushing out that big of a baby. But before they're born, these animals have the longest gestation period. Their gestation period, or how long an animal is pregnant for, is 16 to 18 months. And theirs is so long thanks to their brain. They have the second largest brain, which gives them the ability to develop such sophisticated, complex relationships and culture with one another. I did mention earlier that they never leave their families. So where does that leave them when it comes to mating? It's a little concerning. But thankfully, these guys are smart enough that they know not to hook up with their family. They'll mate with, other, with members of other pods, but never with their own family. They know who they're related to. Orcas are essentially a species that really lives up to the it takes a village um, quote because within the pod, all of them step in to fill the roles, whether it be childcare or food hunting, they're all helping maintain the well-being of the group. And there's actually a really cool slash sad story slash sad story that goes along with this is a lot of us are probably familiar with it, but there was a mother who gave birth to a stillborn calf and as orcas are known to do, she carried along the dead calf on her rostrum, the tip of her nose. She carried it along for so long, and the other members of the pod would help her when she got tired or dropped it. They'd bring it back up to her. She wasn't eating. And finally, uh, after however many days of carrying it, they dropped the orca off, the baby orca, at a rock as and all gathered around and kind of had like a final goodbye. And then... People will say, people that live around that area say that they those that pod goes back to that rock every year almost to mourn the death of their 
brother, daughter, their brother, their son, their, their, their relative, which is so heartwarming. I'll be incredibly sad, but how complex and tightly knit these family groups are is so cool. And I definitely think we could all learn a thing or two from these orcas about maintaining tight bonds. So that kind of explains orca familial bonds, kind of makes me understand how they all work together now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening and until next week, stay salty.